All right, well, good morning again. Thanks for uh, joining us this morning for the teaching time. Um, we are in a series on the rule of life, which is uh, what we're doing. We're going to probably do it every summer, where we talk about the rhythms and the practices that help us to become people that look like Jesus. And uh, our visual here is based off Psalm 1, this passage that talks about people as, they're, as if they're trees. And it gives a vision of what it means to be human, that we are, we are like this tree that's uh, by, by water, by living water, that we are rooted deeply, that we're growing, that we're evergreen, and we're bearing fruit in season. And so that's, that's the vision of what it means to be human and in the Bible and our prayer for you, that you become these kinds of people. And so we're talking about the habits and the practices that make this happen. Now, um, two things. Uh, I, I, I want to just say, first of all, that I was not supposed to be preaching today. And uh, I, I say that for two reasons. Nobody's fault but my own. We had two friends who were going to come preach this week. So we had uh, two women, Mary, Miriam, Miriam Covalition, who is a professor at Regent, and that didn't work out. So then I was going to get my friend Dory, who leads 24-7 prayer, to come, but she's also actually going to Manitoba this weekend. Yes, so we were just sending people to Manitoba left, right, and center, I guess. Uh, so you're stuck with me. We've checked down to a, a less good-looking option up here. Um, but uh, the way that my brain works is that like, I have our sermons prepared basically until uh, next Easter. So I don't know what I'm going to be preaching on on any given week, but they all kind of fit into this vortex of thought for me. So when I had an extra week to preach, I'm like, I don't, I don't even know what I'm going to say. I have no clue what I should be talking about. So... So I didn't prepare anything. No, I, I prepared something. But I'm thinking about as, this, as our family is going on vacation in the next two weeks, we're just sticking around, but we're going to take a little bit of time off. So I was thinking a lot about rest and what does it mean for us to enter rest. And I know that's the season that we're you know, in, in the summer as a church. There's lots of people away, people camping, people at camps, people visiting family all over the world. So what does it mean to rest? And so for me, I, I, often, go as, uh, or I often go back to Genesis 1. To, to understand kind of the, the start of our story and any theme that I'm, I'm looking at in the Bible, I'll go back to this passage and take a look. What does it mean in Genesis 1? So that's where we're going to start this morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Genesis 1, but the passages that I'm going to be talking about are on, this, on the screen. A couple years ago, we went through a series in Genesis 1, so we spent like 13 weeks looking at it. If you have more questions, uh, you can go there. Today's just going to be a bit of a summary. If you remember, the, there's a structure to Genesis 1. So the first three days, we see God creating different spaces. So you can see from this graphic up here. So day one, God's creating time. Day two, he creates the sea and the sky. And then day three, he creates the land. So he's creating these spaces. And then days four to six, God is filling those spaces. So on day four, he puts lights in the dome. These are the things that fill the ancient Near Eastern understanding of, of space and time. That, that help us to tell time, the stars and the sun and the moon. And then day five, he does, creates the fish and the birds, and these are the things that are filling the sea and the sky. And all throughout the passage, if you, if you read it, there's this phrase that's repeated over and over and over again. And God keeps saying that the world that he created is good. He keeps saying this word, it's good, it's good, it's good. And the Hebrew word there is tov, that, that uh, describes good. And it's not a one-to-one -to, -one to our language. Uh, of what we think good is. So I'm just going to mention two things that good means in, in the Hebrew and in this first story in the Bible. The first thing that it means is that when God says good, when he says tov, it means that it's conducive to the life, to flourishing in the world that God has created. Good means that what he's creating is good, it, it helps flourishing in God's world. 
And it's not just flourishing for people. It's not just flourishing for one part of the world. It's this picture of holistic flourishing, that all that he's created is, is going to flourish when he says tov. And the second thing that I want to say about tov is that tov is a reflection of God. So the way that it works is that God is creating creation here, but when he says things are good, it's a reflection of a good God. God is tov, and the world that he creates is tov. It's good. And so we're supposed to see creation as a reflection of this God who's creating. So he says tov, everything is tov, and then we come to day six, and God starts creating different things, but he uses a different word here that hasn't shown up so far in the narrative. He uses the word blessed. It says God blessed, and he blesses a bunch of things. And this word is slightly different. Now, what does blessing mean? It's, it's one of these words that it's, if, you, if your Bible was online, if you click that word, blessed, it would send you to a hundred other passages. It's this huge theme that's developed throughout the Bible. But I just want to say three quick things about what it means to be blessed in Genesis 1. The first is that it's a gift language. It's a gift language. And so blessing is something that you must receive from someone else. You have to receive it. You can't bless yourself, in other words. I was reminded of when I was a kid, there was this uh, skit on Saturday Night Live, uh, called, this guy called Stuart Smalley, and then uh, he would say, he would look into a mirror, and as it panned over to him, it said, uh, daily reflections or something like that. And it says, Stuart Smalley is not a therapist. And then he would say, into the mirror, I'm good enough, I'm tough enough, and doggone it, people like me. And people would come onto his talk show, and they'd have all these different problems, and this is always his recommendation to them. Just to say, look in the mirror and say to yourself, I'm good enough, I'm tough enough, and doggone it, people like me. And this is the opposite of what the Bible talks about when it talks about blessings. Positive self-talk is, is really good, but a blessing is something you must receive from someone else. You can't say it over yourself. And many of us understand this. If you think back to your life, like think back to when you're in grade school, there are probably moments that you can point out today within two or three seconds, when somebody came to you and they said a word of blessing over you. They said something nice about you, and it's just seared in your mind. It's become part of your identity and who you are. And the opposite is also true. You probably have moments in your life from when you were quite young where somebody, maybe just offhandedly, maybe a teacher or a friend said something that really cut and hurt you, and that's fundamentally shaped who you are and how you see yourself as a person. These words are, are words that are spoken over us. And so it's a gift that we have to receive. And in this passage, God is the one that's doing the, ble- the blessing. Excuse me. The invitation here, God blesses us, and he's inviting us to work with him in his world. There's an invitation for us to join him in his creation of Tov in the world, to make the world into a place that is flourishing, into a place of shalom, into the kingdom, to extend the kingdom of God. So that's the first thing we need to know about this blessing language. The second thing is that it's a language of success, a success. And by this, uh, while success is a really interesting word because it's a value word, it's a value word, what we think of when we think of success is going to be very, very different, for example. So I like to golf. I was supposed to golf today. Very sadly, I'm not going to be going. So I'm in a bit of a down mood. But I'm a mediocre golfer. I would call myself a mediocre golfer. Karsten might disagree. Um, but I, I, if I hit in, play in the 80s, then I feel like that's a really successful round for me. Okay? If you're a professional golfer, so if basically that means like if I hit one or two good shots while I'm playing golf, I feel good about myself. I'm like, success, I'll come back. If you're a professional golfer and you golf in the 80s, 
that would be a disastrous round for you. Or if you're Brad Snyder and you golf. Brad came golfing with us a couple weeks ago and he said, I haven't golfed in three years, and then he just destroyed us. So his success is on a different register than mine. You understand? And so what we think of when we think of success, it's a value word, is really important. So what success means in Genesis 1 is that we can carry out this purpose for which we were created. That this invitation from God to partner together to create Tov in the world, to create places of shalom and beauty and hope, that we can actually successfully do it if we partner along with God and his work. The third thing that uh, I want to say about blessing is that in the Bible there are two options. There's blessing and then there is curse. There's no neutral space in between. So either someone or something is blessed or it's cursed. And I totally understand that this comes across a bit as judgy language, where you're like, whoa, whoa, that sounds very judgy, sounds very binary to me. And it does, but we have to also remember how Jesus refines this language, that he takes the language of blessing and he says, the people that are blessed are not the people that the world would call blessed necessarily, but it's the poor. And then he pronounces a bunch of woes or curses on people that the world would think is blessed. Woe to you who are the religious leaders. And maybe the most poignant moment where he takes on this language is he says to his followers in the Sermon on the Mount, bless those who curse you. Those who come to you and wish you ill and use their their lives and their language to to destroy Tov in the world, to create Ra, which is evil, and say that over you. you. The power of God's kingdom is strong enough that you can actually learn to bless them, to extend God's goodness towards them. So there's blessing or curse. There's no neutral spot. So these are the three things I want us to keep in mind as we go here about what blessing is. That blessing is a gift. That blessing it guarantees success and that there's no neutral space when, when the Bible talks about blessing. So with, with those in mind, there's three things that get blessed in this first narrative from Genesis 1. First thing that's blessed in the Bible. I want you to just take a second on your own. Just think, what would you think is the first thing that's blessed in the Bible? Well, the first thing that's blessed in this narrative and in the Bible in general is animals. Here's the passage, Genesis 1.22. God blessed them as he's created the animals. And it says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters of the sea, and let the birds multiply on the earth. So to the animals, there's this blessing. There's this invitation and this gift. Come and join me in my work in expanding the kingdom. And God's guaranteeing success. And then he's saying, you animals are not cursed, but you are blessed. You're invited. And this, to me, is a bit of a surprise. The animals are blessed. And then the next thing that we see is blessed is the second creation on day six. And that's people. And here's what it says in Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Now, two things I want us to notice here. First, the language is almost identical if you notice that, between what God says to the animals and what God says to the humans. And this is pointing out what's pointed out all throughout Genesis, is that there's a, there's a connection between us and the created world. And this idea that some of us probably were raised with, that we kind of like, when we go to heaven, we just shoot out of this world, and it doesn't matter what we do here, is not part of the narrative in Genesis 1. There's actually an intimate connection between the animals and the people. There's similarity, but there's difference. But we're connected together. And then we also see this language of blessing here over the people, that there's a gift, that we are invited to participate in God's work of creating Tov in the world. And there's a partnership 
here. We get antsy around these words that you might see up here, subdue and rule, and of course those words have been used very negatively uh, in the past by churches and by other people. But if you, if you take the context here of what it's saying, God is saying, I want you to be like me, to continue your, the work of reflecting me into the world. And what we see God doing in Genesis 1 is expanding his kingdom and his work. Not in, a, not in a way that's, uh, you know, domineering over people, but in a way that's extending tove and goodness. That's, that's the work that we're invited into, the benevolent work that we witness God doing. There's a guarantee of success here as well. When God blesses humans and invites us to be fruitful and multiply, there's this guarantee of success, and we'll come back to this theme as well. And then finally, we hear this word spoken over human, blessed but not cursed. And I'll just say this very quickly here. You know, a lot of times Christians... Well, there's more to the story of the Bible, of course. This is just the first chapter. There's 66 books. I don't know how many pages. I don't know how many chapters, but a lot more. This is only chapter one. But a lot of us sink our identity into chapter three, which, of course, does talk about curse. But we live there, and, and we think about humanity in that terms, like humanity is broken. Humanity, you know, the things that we do are like filthy rags. There's nothing that we can bring that's good. And of course, that's part of the story, and we can talk about that. But I also think it's very important for us to hear these first words that are spoken over us. You are good. There is a blessing for you. There is a hope for you. There is an invitation to participate in goodness in the world. And both of those things need to stand together. Unfortunately, we often sink our teeth over here, and we forget this word of blessing. And maybe that's what you need to hear this morning, is just this word of blessing. Blessed are you. And so we see the people are, there's a gift to them, there's this blessing for them, and there's invitation of success. But there's one more thing that's blessed in Genesis 1. And again, this is surprising to me. Let me read from chapter 2. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. And so here we don't see people or things, but a time that's blessed, the Sabbath time. And again, this is a surprise for me. It wouldn't have been for the ancient Near Eastern readers, though, because when they think of blessing, blessing is something that they're chasing, for sure. And it's ble blessing is something that we're all chasing. We want people or someone to come and speak these words of goodness over us, to fill us up. In the ancient Near East, the way that they thought about it is in three terms. There would be places that are blessed. There are certain places that you could go that are blessed. So, for example, temples are a place that you go where you receive blessing. The second thing is there are certain activities that you could do which would bring blessing to you. So, for example, you might do sacrifices. That'll bring you blessing. They're religious activities. And then the third thing that would bring you blessing is time. So you would observe special days or feasts. And so what's being said in this creation narrative is, is actually very, very interesting in the context. God is doing the same thing. He's saying blessing is, is a place. There's a place for blessing, but it's not just a temple. In fact, the narrative is laid up as if God is building a temple. Our whole world, he says, is a temple. There's not one specific place that you can go that's the hot spot of God's presence, but in fact, he comes to dwell with us in all of creation. It's all a theater for his excellence and his glory and a place where we can experience blessing. The second thing is there's not specific religious activities that we do that bring blessing to us. But God says anytime you participate in Tov, anytime you participate in this fruitful, being fruitful and multiplying and extending my goodness and shalom into the world, you're part of this story of Tov and you're part of the story of blessing. 
So it's not specific religious activities. And then the third is it's not a, a specific time. It's not like a, a, a celebration or a festival, but it's this day, the Sabbath, where God rested and he invites us into. And it's also called not just blessed, but it's called holy. It's set apart for us. So today we're going to talk a little bit about this practice of Sabbath. We're, as we're talking through the different um, practices that we, we do as the people of God and, and asking the question, how can we live in, and participate in God's invitation of Tov and blessing in our world? How can we implement these rhythms in our lives and learn how to keep time with God? And so our practice, we've been talking about different practices, and this is our rule of life, our community rule of life here. So the practice that we're going to be talking about is this uh, weekly practice. There's three sets three rings of practices, daily, weekly, and monthly. It's this 24-hour Sabbath every week. And for our family, we practice it, and traditionally it was practiced sundown to sundown. Friday, for our family, it's Friday night to Saturday night. This invitation to partner and Sabbath with God. And so we're going to move from kind of the why or the vision behind Sabbath to talking very practically now about how. How can we practice Sabbath? And so I've got these uh, guides here for us. If you want to come grab one, they're up here. There's pens here. So we're going to invite you to take some notes and just think, not to necessarily take notes about what I'm saying, but how this might relate to your life. So yeah, feel free to come and grab them. And we're going to get really practical. And and the way we're going to walk through it is in four different parts. And I'm going to, uh, I'm going to be parroting Pete Scazzaro, if you're familiar with his work. He writes Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, which is a great book, and he's been really, really helpful to me in understanding some different practices for Sabbath. So there's four parts that we're going to be talking through and what it means to actually take a Sabbath. So the first one, the first part is to stop, to stop. And this is the word Sabbath is the Hebrew word Shabbat, which is the word to cease or to stop. That's right, built right into the the word. So what are we supposed to stop or cease? Well, it's our, first and foremost, our work. We stop and cease from our work. And this can be paid work, or it can be unpaid work. So for some of us, we have careers, we have jobs that we come to, we get paid for them, we work our nine to five, you go to an office or you work home, from home, and that's uh, what we're called to stop on the Sabbath. But for some of us, we also have unpaid work that we're doing. So maybe you're a student, for example, and you're not getting paid, you're paying instead, probably, to be a student, but that is your work right now, and there's an invitation on the Sabbath to stop from that, or, as we hear from the sounds around us, there are many young children in this room. God's one of, one of the blessings of God in our, in our community, and these folks, uh, for some, some people in our community, that means that your job, unpaid, is to take care of these children, and that's your work, and you're called to stop, cease from that, for a period of time. Now, you might think right away, what am I supposed to do? Like, I have a three-month-old. Am I supposed to be like, you're on your own, kid. The Lord, the Lord bless and keep you and make his face shine upon you for this 24 hours. Maybe we'll see you at the other, on the other side. I don't really know. So here I'm just going to get really, really practical. When our kids were really young, and actually we still sort of do this now, what we did is we split our Sabbath up into shifts. So we did it Friday night to Saturday night. So Friday, Saturday morning... Uh, I would be on with the kids. And so me and my brother-in-law, we would take our kids, we called it Saturday Daturday. And we would take our kids out of the house, which is my wife's office, so we would move our kids out, and she could do whatever she wanted until lunchtime. And so we would just take the kids out, we took them to all sorts of terrible restaurants around uh, Gastown, and um, we'd go play with our kids outside for all morning. So there's a shift, so I would say break it up into four, three, four, four-hour chunks. One four-hour chunk, we would try to hang out together, 
and then the other four-hour chunk, I would get a break. So that's how we broke up our Sabbath uh, when our kids were quite young. And so you have to be creative with it if you have young kids. Uh, right now, what we do is we have Wednesday is my day with, with the kids. So we call it Wednesday. Um, and I take the kids that day, and it's just Sarah's day to do whatever she needs to do, to rest, to go get her hair cut, whatever it is that she wants, to Sabbath a little bit. And then I take my Sabbath usually Friday night to Saturday night. So you've got to get creative with it in different seasons of life. But I do encourage you, if you are taking care of your kids when they're young, that is a job, and you're, you're encouraged to just rest from it for a little while. Marva Dawn, in her great book, Keeping the Sabbath Holy, she says, here's not just resting from work, but let's take a wider lens in what it means to, to stop, sorry, to cease. She says, there are many aspects of Sabbath ceasing, to cease not only from work itself, but also from the need to accomplish and be productive from the worry and tension that accompanies our modern criteria of efficiency, from our efforts to be in control of our own lives as if we were God, from our possessiveness and our enculturation, and finally from the humdrum and meaninglessness that result when life is pursued without the Lord at the center of it all. A great benefit of Sabbath keeping is that we learn to let God take care of us, not by becoming passive and lazy, but in the freedom of giving up our feeble attempts to be God in our own lives. I love this invitation. And she talks about so many different things that we are invited to cease from. And this is a wonderful book. Very unfortunately, she passed away recently, but um, she's just a sage of wisdom when it comes to practicing the Sabbath. And if, uh, when I first preached on Sabbath in our Rule of Life series, the, the text that I was using was when the uh, Israelites were coming out of Egypt. And the language of Sabbath is reiterated there as a way to stop the pharaohs in our lives, to, to say that God is God, as she's saying here, that God will take care of us and not to be the God of our own lives. And we all have different pharaohs that call out to us. Some are external pharaohs. So there, there are things that call out to us from our culture, from the outside, like she's saying, to, to produce, to make more, to be efficient. And so on that note, again, very practically, two things I would encourage you to stop, to cease from, in your Sabbath. Number one would be buying and selling. Commerce. To take a break for 24 hours from buying and selling anything, from window shopping, from going on Facebook Marketplace, and trying to find that third Ikea bed that you so need. Just to take a break and to stop and say, this is not us. This is not who we are. We're going to just step out of that for a day. And the second is to take a break from technology. And I know this is completely unrealistic, but Take at least part of the day off. Maybe, again, if you're thinking about shifts, take one of those shifts off from technologies. Put your phone away for four hours of the day and step out of that space of needing to be attached to our phones and attached to everything coming in. And you can just think about it this way. You know, will I be more rested? Will I feel more invited into this mission of God to create Tove in the world? Will I feel that I'm blessed and good by doom-scrolling for three hours on Saturday? Or is there another invitation that's better for me in order to step into God's story? So there's those outer pharaohs that we have, but there's also the inner pharaohs that call out to us from our own lives, that we need more. This is one that, that calls out to me, that there's, there needs to be more, that I'm only something if I accomplish, I'm only someone, I'm only blessed and good if I accomplish something during the day. Or you're lazy if you don't do anything. And resisting my humanity and a dependency, the, to, the belief that I have in the back of my mind that I'm superhuman, that I can just keep going, that I'm just going to keep chugging along, and nothing will affect me. 
These are lies that I tell myself and are deeply embedded within my, my story and the story of my family. And they're pharaohs that call out to me, not from out there, but from in here. And I'm called to stop and resist those during my Sabbath. So, a question for you. Just to reflect on, I'm giving you a few minutes here. What are areas of work in your life that you might need to cease from in order to Sabbath well? What are some areas of work in your own life that you might need to cease from in order to Sabbath well? So I'm just going to give you a minute. You write a few of those down as they come to mind, and then we'll move on to the next one. All right, we're going to move on to the next. There's four parts, but they kind of work together. So stop, we stop in order to rest. That's why we stop. We stop in order to rest. Now, what's rest? Rest is things that help us to embrace our humanity, remind ourselves that we're not God, that we're dependent on God and dependent on each other as people. That's what it means to be created and not the creator. And there's things that we do that restore us and replenish us and re-invite us back into the story of tov, of good, of blessing. Abraham Heschel, uh, who wrote a great book, he's a Jewish author, he wrote a great book on Sabbath, he says this, a man who works with his mind should Sabbath with his hands, and a man who works with his hands should Sabbath with his mind. And what he means by this is the things that you do for your work are going to probably be fun for somebody else. For example, uh, if you're a a professional artist or a musician, that's what you do for your job, that's part of your work, and so you should rest from that on your Sabbath. Even though you may enjoy it, you're called to rest from it. For some of the rest of us, we're not professional musicians or artists. So for me, for example, I often like to play some music or listen to music on my Sabbath. It's it's restful for me. If you're a professional gardener, for example, then you should stop gardening on the Sabbath. But for the rest of us, we may really find that restful to have our hands in the dirt, to be there cultivating and joining God in that. So whatever it is that you do for your work, you should take a break from it. But it's going to look different for other people. And that's part of not making this into something um, that's like a religious uh, ceremony where we're becoming self-righteous about. But instead, the invitation is going to look different for us. So for example, if you do all the cooking for your family on the regular week, then don't cook on the Sabbath. Make your partner cook, no matter how terrible. You know it's going to be burnt mac and cheese. That's all right. You're going to make it through another day. God will take care of you too. Um, you know, for me, uh, I often take, do physical activity, so I'll often bike on my Sabbath because it turns out all of my life I believed I would be a professional athlete and that would be my job. Turns out it hasn't quite happened. So uh, I'm able, therefore, to enjoy some physical activity on my Sabbath. But I often listen to podcasts as I'm riding. But I've been realizing that's actually part of my work. That I'm, I'm, I'm starting to think about you know, preaching or our church or stuff like that. And so the invitation for me in this past season has not been to listen to podcasts, rather just to listen to some music. And I found that, you know, listening, um, listening to slow music, it doesn't really work very well if you're trying to ride, you know, this calming kind of music. Enya doesn't really get me up the mountain, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, but sometimes I listen to music, or I'll just listen to nothing, just the sound of my breathing and trying not to vomit as I climb Mount Seymour on my bike. It's very, very restful. Um, but that's the idea, is like, whatever we do for our job, we're to, to walk away from it for a, a season of time. But rest, again, goes just beyond our work. Marva Dawn, again, gives us five areas where we consider rest. So you may want to write these ones down. That we're to rest spiritually. And again, rest doesn't mean just stopping, doing something. That's why it's paired with stopping. We stop things in order to rest. A Sabbath is not to be spent away from God. If you remember the story of Genesis 1, it's actually an invitation to come into the presence of God. 
And so we're to spend time with God in his word, uh, praying, doing different spiritual activities. That God actually really, really wants to meet with us. That's his greatest desire, to be with us, to bless us, and to invite us into his story. And so spending some time with God, spiritually resting. The second is to emotionally rest. Maybe rest from some of the taxing emotions and emotional situations you find yourself in through the week. But also, if you're like me, and you try to be an emotional robot all week, maybe to engage in your emotions. To remember that you're a full human being. And say, what have I emotionally experienced this week? That's the invitation to rest, is to become a full human. Physical rest. Again, if your job is physically taxing, to take a break. But if it's not, if it's very sedentary, I think a good practice to do is to go for a walk. If you're not climbing Mount Seymour, that's fine. Just go for a walk. Get a little bit of physical exercise. Intellectual rest. I already talked about that for myself. And then social rest. This pattern of engaging with people and then also retreating to take some time off to be away from people. So these are five areas. And generally, because we max out our calendars and our lives, if we want to rest well, there's two things that I found that are really important. The first is that you have to prepare for this. You have to prepare, actually, to Sabbath. And I'll just say straight out, this is what our family is probably the worst at. So I'm, just not, I'm not saying we've nailed this in any way. This is probably the area where we fail the most. If you want to rest, for example, and you are not trying to do commerce on your Sabbath, then you have to have purchased the food previous to that day. So you have to prepare. You have to think through. And this involves calendaring. It involves getting your schedule together. It involves knowing what your kids have on their schedule and what's happening and how you're going to break up the day. There's a preparatory element to it. And the second part of it is that you have to make good use of the other six days of your week. That there's this spiritual symmetry that we're invited into of work and rest. If you're just resting all the time, the Sabbath is not going to be set apart or holy, is it? And so there's, we need to make good use of those other six days, paying the bills. All the other things that you know are going to pop up on that Sabbath to have a time and a space for them. So here's what I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you a question, and I'm going to ask you to turn to somebody uh, that you, that's sitting beside you, preferably somebody that you won't know, um, and ask this question. Just talk about this with each other. If you were to start a Sabbath practice next week, what's one thing you'd need to prepare in order to rest? If you were going to start a Sabbath practice next week, this, this week, what would be one thing you need to prepare in order to engage in Sabbath rest? Okay? Questions clear? Directions are clear? Turn to someone beside you and chat through this question. What's one thing you need to prepare? And I'll bring you back in a few minutes. All right, we're going to move on to the next one. You'll get a chance to chat again. Um, so the next step, so these two go together, work and, or sorry, stopping and resting. And the next two, the third one is delight. Delight. In Genesis 1, after every creative act, God says the word good. And sometimes he says it's very, very good. And this is at the beginning of the story, the proclamation over all things, that God has created a good world, that he's created us good. And delight, in my opinion, is just remembering that God has created good in our world. And there's a celebratory aspect to this. Marva Dawn, in her book, she has a whole section, it's just called Feasting on keeping the Sabbath. And it's just like feasting in all these different ways. It's pushing for me. And this is really important for us as a counterbalance to our world and the pharaohs that speak in our lives in two different ways. The first one is um, uh, from this guy named Hartman Rosa. He's a sociologist. Mitch and I are reading one of his books right now. And he talks about this, that our world is shaped by two emotional forces. The first one is our desire to expand our share in the world. 
this desire for more that we have that's baked into our Western world. And the second is our fear, this fear that we will not have enough, that we'll not be able to keep up. And all day, these are the things that are calling out to us, to our desires, that we will not have enough and that we should always have more. And when we live like this, Rosa says the world actually becomes gray and mute. It becomes silent to us rather than what we're made for, which is a world of resonance, a world that speaks to us, a world that's enchanted, a world that's good, which is what the Genesis 1 says. And so uh, taking delight is, is something that works against that force in our lives. And the second force is against being miserly, miserly. Some of us may not be familiar with this word. I looked up the word cheap, uh, and the synonyms for this word, and it wasn't like, they were like frugal, and I'm like, that's not, that's too nice. The word I'm looking for is miserly, and I was like, ah, yes, this is the word that it is. It's where we take cheapness to just be our identity, and some of us know what that is. Like, I was raised, like I said, by um, a Chinese dad and a Mennonite mom, which just means double cheap, um, and so this is me. My tendency is to be miserly all the time, to try to scrimp and save. But again, we have to remember this sacred symmetry that comes in this invitation from God. It's to work six days. Work is good. Work's not evil. But then to rest on the seventh. There's this invitation to fast. And then there's an invitation to feast. And there's an invitation for a very simple life that we see Jesus living. But then there's also this invitation to celebrate. And it's about balancing these two things. The invitation of, of Sabbath is this moment for us to rest to feast, to celebrate. I think of the words of Jesus often uh, in, when he tells the parable in, in Luke 15 that the Father just says, we had to celebrate. We had to celebrate that this is the word. There's always something to delight in if God is good and he's created our world. So again, I'm going to get you to turn to, to someone next to you. What's one thing in your life or the world that God might be inviting you to take delight in? What's one thing in your world or in your life that you can take delight in. So again, turn to each other, we'll talk through that, and then we'll go through the last movement before we respond. Okay, so the last movement that we're going to talk about, um, so we've got stopping, resting, and then those two kind of go together, and then we've got delighting, and the final one is to contemplate. To contemplate, that's what uh, Pete Scazzaro's word for it. And the way that I like to think of this is what we're doing is we're taking the delight that we have, the things that we are experiencing, and we turn them back to God. We say that you are the source of all of these things in our world that I delight in. That all the tov that I see in our world and in my relationships and even in myself, they are blessings from God. They come from his hand and from his mouth. And so I become a thankful person. And this again goes back to that idea. Sabbath is not time away from God. He longs to be with us. It's time that we turn over to God. It's time that we're invited to be with God to be thankful, and to contemplate. And Genesis 1, as I said, it, this is how the Bible story works. Genesis 1 it is um, not the first part or the only part of the story. It's just the first part of the story. We hear these words of good and blessing, but very tragically, just a couple chapters later, what we see is people walking away from the blessing of God. And then we see in, 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 uh, in response to this, there is a curse. There's a curse over everything that's created. The people choose not to enter God's rest, and so then he says to them that the multiplying and being fruitful that you were made for is now going to be very, very difficult for you. It's going to bring you immense amounts of pain. And the labor and cultivating the ground and the way that we extend shalom into the world is going to be unbelievably difficult. 
And it even says that the ground is cursed because of our actions. And the people are sent away. They're sent out of the presence of God. They're sent away from this blessing and this presence that we are called to be part of on the Sabbath day. But a few chapters later in the story, and now, sir, let me just go back. That may be more what we experience on an everyday basis in our life, that our work is very, very hard, that to work together with other people, to work together with God is very difficult and our world has become silent. But a few chapters later in the story, we're also invited to see Jesus as he comes into our world as a purveyor of blessing, but also as one who has to receive the curse, that he walks fully into what it means to be human, to remove the curse from us, to take that away as he does on the cross. And his resurrection is the first day then of a new creation story, a light pushing back into the darkness. And he's reproclaiming this, this invitation of goodness, that Tov once again is in the world. And he's re-blessing us, removing the curse, and giving us this gift. In the Greek, it's called charis, or grace, that may be language you're more familiar with. This gift to participate in his goodness, and this invitation to partner with him and with each other in the world, to see goodness extend. And one of the great blessings for me, like it's not only the gift, but that he's guaranteeing success. That the resurrection of Jesus is a guarantee of hope and success for us. I don't know about you, but so often, the things that I step into that I think are tove in the world, often it's like one step forward and two steps back. And it seems like the darkness is just winning over and over and over again. And the resurrection of Jesus is this moment where we're to hear these words of blessing over us, that this is a guarantee of success, that he will make it happen, and that he will invite us into his final rest, this place where we're able to be with him and walk back into this sacred symmetry of practicing work and rest, of practicing simplicity and celebration with him and with each other, and the great hope of the new heavens and the earth where we'll partner with Jesus in a full way to see his shalom extend over to all creation. Jesus says these words, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. What does it look like to enter into God's rest this week? Let's pray to close. God, we thank you for this invitation to rest, uh, and it's as old as the beginning of the story. So we thank you for it, and, and we ask that you would help us to learn in our modern day with all the different things that we have, the blessings that we have, as well as the effects of the curse and the distractions that we have in our lives to celebrate and to partner with you in uh, your blessing of time, in a keeping of Sabbath. So, so many of us long for rest. We pray that we would experience the rest of Jesus that comes from ceasing from our work, that you come into your open arms as people who are weary and burdened. But I also ask that you would help us to celebrate and, and um, participate with you in their keeping the way that we keep time in order to experience uh, your blessing and your goodness and to be renewed into this story. So for all of us today, we, I ask that you would give us um, not only a vision for, for celebrating, but also that you would help us to put this into action and to plan in our lives in the various ways that we might become a community of people who are living in different rhythm than the rest of the world, that your goodness and your glory and this, this word of blessing may shine out from our lives. So as we respond now in, in communion, in worship, in prayer, in fellowship, we ask that your name would be honored and glorified, that you would be lifted up, and that you may grant us your rest. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.